Hello all, and welcome to another episode of Physical Attraction. I'm excited today that we have a guest on the show today, Gemma Milne, who has written a book, Smoke and Mirrors, about how technological hype distorts the future. I really enjoyed the book, which deals with nine areas of considerable hype in technology, and not only takes you through some of the fascinating near-term applications for these technologies, but also grounds them in society, in politics, in reality, really. Uh, Gemma kindly donated her time in the midst of a virtual book tour to be interviewed on the show. Without further ado then, the interview. Okay, so Gemma, first, thanks very much for agreeing to come on the show. I'd like to let you sort of introduce yourself to the audience because you've had this really interesting career that's taken you through the world of startups, science and tech innovation, through advertising and marketing, and now advising governments and NGOs and so on. So can you tell us about your career, how you kind of became interested in technology and some of the things you learned along the way? And you're also one of the co-founders of this organization, Science Disrupt, which hosts its own podcast, Science Disrupt Podcast which the listeners are, of course, urged to check out. So um, if you could tell us about that as well and the type of people who come on your show, that would be great. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, gosh, uh, how do I say it quickly, this this strange uh, and quilted weird journey, I suppose, that I've had in my career? <laughs> well, I started with a maths degree and while I was studying, I guess I did a whole load of different kind of jobs and internships and I guess I was trying to score things off the list to try and work out what I wanted to do in my life and I was one of those math students that had the big investment banking people come to university and tell them how amazing it is and I, I bought into what they were selling and I ended up at JP Morgan for their sort of um, internship that was going to lead to the graduate job and I I did that, but very quickly, sort of about a third of the way through, halfway through, I realized it absolutely was not for me. So um, I, you know, I went back and Googled creative business jobs, London, thinking, mm-hmm. okay, I've done the math thing. Maybe I'll try the, the sort of art side of myself. And of course, when you Google creative business jobs, you end up in advertising. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, so I ended up working at Ogilvy, which is one of the biggest um, advertising companies in the world. And originally I was kind of working as a sort of account manager kind of person um which i hated um but very quickly um you know realized that i really wanted to get out of advertising and back into science and tech and that that was my sort of my love and that i was really missing it but luckily i got offered this uh, really great role in corporate innovation and so my job was essentially going around the world meeting startups trying to work out what the future of science and tech looked like um you know on behalf of the company um and that was a great job but it it kind of, I suppose, opened my mind to, I don't know, how everything all links together. And I think my experience of being in an advertising agency, but also, you know, for a short time in investment banking and kind of all the other weird and wonderful roles I'd done at university from, you know, being a chef to door-to-door salesperson, it kind of made me realize that I was more interested in, I guess, the system of the world and how everything kind of linked together. Um, mm-hmm. But again, I was still more interested in science than in, um, you know, advertising and media. Um, so I, we started Science Disrupt while I was still at Ogilvy. And yeah, it started just as um, me and my partner, Lawrence, you know, I was lucky enough that part of my job at Ogilvy was doing a whole load of public speaking and going to conferences and all that. And one of the things I really liked talking about was, you know, how can we make science better? How can we communicate it better? How can we get more people interested in it? But also how can we make it more accessible, more open, more fair, less biased? How do we make peer review better? All these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And um, I did one talk at South by Southwest on this topic and it got a really good response. And I kind of came home to London and sort of said to Lawrence, I think we need to 
do something because everyone keeps asking me, you know, what my job is. And I'm like, well, I work in corporate innovation, an advertising company. And they're like, well, that's weird. That's not really anything to do with changing science. <laughs> um, so we started Science Disrupt, just a podcast to kind of interview some people who were trying to make science better, for lack of a better words. And um, so, you know, the, the, the tagline was we interviewed the innovators, iconoclasts and entrepreneurs creating change in science. Um, but after um, a little bit of time uh, at uh, doing that at, while I was also Ogilvy, I was made redundant um, and realized that instead of going and getting another corporate job, um, and also I didn't want to do science disrupt full time, I didn't want to turn it into a company and become a sort of thing I hated doing. Um, but I really liked, you know, sharing ideas and still being a part of this broader, shall we say, how the world works, <laughs> thinking mm-hmm. people, whether that's consultants or writers or broadcasters or whatever. Um, so I just decided to stay freelance. That was in 2016. And then fast forward a little bit further, I ended up getting a book deal to write about hype, which um, my book Smoke and Mirrors came out three weeks ago, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, that's all about kind of the role that hype and idealism and narratives play in science and tech. And we kind of went on a bit of a hiatus, actually, from Science Disrupt. We'd, you know, we'd been running events and we had a big Slack group and we were, you know, started publishing some articles and stuff um, while still doing the podcast in the background. But while I was finishing my book and my partner, who was um, my co-host, Lawrence, finished his PhD. Um, And actually, just now we've kind of relaunched it and it's now going to focus a bit more on, shall we say, instead of people who are at the coal face and you know, startups trying to disrupt science and all these sorts of things. We wanted to try and take it a bit more high level um, and a bit more into discussions and theories and ideas of how we can change uh, academia and I guess the world around it. So we're now going to be interviewing predominantly authors. We had our first interview last night actually with um, Wendy Liu who wrote Abolish Silicon Valley. Um, so yeah. Ah, yes. <laughs> seen that book. I, that, that's another one of the books I wanted to read. No, that's really interesting. Thank you so much for sort of summarising your career. In yeah, such sorry. A, it's a bit of a whistle, whistle stop tour. No, 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 no. no it's, it's really interesting. And I think the thing that's interesting about it is that you've seen hype from both sides, I mm. guess. You've seen mm. hype from the sort of external perspective of looking at it um, as something that other people do and maybe something you've been involved with yourself. So the best place to start in discussing Smoke and Mirrors then, which is this, this brilliant book that you've written about technological hype, is to talk about the idea of hype. Mm. And it does start with a definition. Of course, there's many. So what are some of the ways that you've thought about hype uh, surrounding technology, what it means in society? How is it created and what does it do? Sure. Um, I mean, when I first started uh, thinking about, you know, writing the book and thinking about how I was going to present hype, it was definitely coming from this perspective of frustration and annoyance about Mm -hmm. hype. You know, oh, it's this thing that people don't get and it's misrepresenting science and technology and blah, 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 blah. That that kind of like usual feel that people in science and tech um, tend to have around hype. Um, But as I started researching it more and thinking more about I guess the role it plays as this sort of invisible hand within the system of science and tech and not just science and tech, but how that then impacts society. I realized that it was probably better to think of it as a tool, um, a tool for cutting through uh, the sort of information overload that we have, a tool for gathering attention, a tool for being heard. And sometimes that tool is really, really important to use, you know, particularly with really complicated areas of science and tech or when we're trying to, you know, petition government or try and put new policies in or try and get funding you know hype is needed to be heard and to be understood but you know sometimes the tool can be used irresponsibly and as I sort of outlined in the book there's many different um I guess examples of where hype has pushed us in directions that are maybe not so um not so good and sometimes not always where it started and I think I try and make the argument that 
there of course is a level of responsibility in the people that put out hype or the people who kind of amplify hype and whatnot um but there's also a lot to be said for individuals you know sort of having responsibility themselves in how they interpret information how they contextualize information and how they essentially critically think around the narratives that are put in front of them so i you know i don't want to make the the book a blameful book um but equally i wanted to not just be like oh it's the media's fault it's startups fault blah 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 of course they play a role but really I want to say, well, actually, as citizens of the world, we all need to pay attention to the fact that this tool is being used and we we can't sort of just hold our hands up and say, oh, I don't understand this stuff, so I'm just going to retweet it, it's fine. We need to kind of be a bit more engaged. Um, so yeah, I, I guess my, my own journey of thinking about hype has changed over the years and I suppose now I've got to maybe a slightly more nuanced view on it and I think I mean <laughs> when you write a book on nuance it's quite hard to feel come away with a non-nuanced <laughs> take on it <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> you're trying to advocate for this um but yeah I guess my, my big thing is all about how do people pause and critically think and and cut through hype by understanding it better and it, 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 it's it's a tension because we all want science and technology to advance and take us to these brilliant places you know we all want uh, you know, science and technological solutions that will help with climate change, or you have a whole book that's on curing cancer and mm-hmm. things like this. Everyone wants this, but you can also feel like there's this irrational exuberance. You know, people are there convinced the whole world is going to be taken over by AI. Yeah. Startups are kind of spinning the wheels and uh, spinning the wheel and sort of taking on Black Mirror episode plots as business models and things like this. I mean, you, you, you've worked with startups who are obviously sometimes in this vein. They're like researchers, but even more so. They have to try and use hype. Mm. where they have to hype up their product or their idea by a certain amount to attract funding. And uh, part of what you must do is having these critical thinking skills to be able to spot hype that you want everyone to develop. So if if someone's showing you a deck of slides, for example, illustrating their new idea for a business, for a startup, Mm. how would you spot hype? Uh, It's it's obviously not as simple as just a list of questions, but what are the kind of things you'd want to think about to uh, see hype in action? Sure. Um, So I guess the first sort of red flag for me, and that doesn't necessarily mean the company's bad, but um, the first sort of red flag I always um, tend to spot is when there's any form of sort of absolutist idea put in front of um, put in front of me. So I don't know, this technology will do this or, Mm. um, you know, the the world is going in this direction. These kind of like very um, catchy narratives. Exactly. Precisely. So those tend to be the first things. My first sort of question is, is that, is that definitely true? And in what context is that true? Um, The next thing I tend to do is try and put, the company or the idea into the broader context in which it exists. So say for instance, I don't know, it's a agri-tech, a, a agriculture technology. So say it's like, I don't know, an app for helping digitize farming. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not enough to only look at that in the context of the farmer and the farm. You also have to look about, you know, the supply chain of where the farmer puts the produce and you have to think about climate and, kind of the the sort of seasonal impact um that farming has you also have to think about the different players in industry so who are the big players Mm -hmm. who are the small players who are the powerful players um which countries are really active which aren't um as much um you also have to think about the sort of politics around the idea so you know are there particular regulations that are in the way of certain things or are there particular regulations that have opened up particular industries in certain ways um what are the sort of debates between shall we say the left and the right or the different 
you know, factions within politics with regards to this area. Um, and then if you zoom out even further, you can start thinking about ethics and philosophy and, and history, you know, what's the history of these kind of innovations within this um within this kind of realm. And of course, you know, when I'm sitting watching a, a startup pitch for, you know, that's five minutes long, of course I can answer all those questions and pay attention to what they're saying and, you know, mm-hmm. and do all those things. But I guess over time you learn to start piecing together maps or pictures or broader systems. And so when someone presents something from a, from within that system, you automatically start going, well, how does that relate to this other startup that I saw pitch? Or how does that relate to mm-hmm. that announcement I read about three weeks ago? Or how does that relate to the, the thing that this new politician is campaigning for or so on and so forth? So it's always about trying to, for me personally, it, it's like trying to take the startup and kind of lift them out of their little... Uh, pitching yes their their narrative and put them into something else and go what does that look like in this other realm does it still make sense does it is it as compelling um and it's also if the startup isn't talking about or shall we say that the founder the individual if they are not um talking about the challenges it's like well i mean absolutely no company is perfect or has no challenges and Mm -hmm. They're not bad people for not presenting that in a five-minute pitch. But if we don't ask those questions, then we're not necessarily going to be able to get that insight. So it's trying to pick apart and be like, okay, well, what's hard about what you're doing? Um, what do you see going wrong? Um, what regulations in your way? What kind of customers do you have? You know, all these sorts of things. It's really trying to kind of pick apart where things might go wrong. And that, again, mm-hmm. might seem like I'm being very, I guess critical or skeptical or whatever but I think it's more about hearing what someone's saying and then going okay well you're obviously going to present the best version of that and that's great but I need to understand more in order to understand how powerful this really is. I can totally agree with that and I think what's interesting is when you do take some of these whiz-bang narratives about how a new technology is going to completely change things and then you do put it in some other context whether it's an economic context or a social context or a political context one thing I remember a few years ago everyone was excited about solar roadways Mm -hmm. Uh, you know the roads were Mm -hmm. going to be made out of solar panels and there were companies that got kickstarter funding for this and then if you actually ask yourself the question well would it not be easier to put the solar panels next to the roads? Mm. <laughs> Even this is enough to start the whole narrative that they have unraveling. So you, yeah. it, it's a very valuable tool to try and put things in, you know, who are the actors who need to be convinced? What are the supply chains like? What are the issues that you're not telling us about in your pitch? But it's also just sometimes asking what might seem like really stupid questions. And yeah. I, I think that that's something, particularly in the kind of tech and science field, that is not always... Is talked about, you know, ask ask stupid questions, think about your customer, you know, design thinking, all these sorts of things. But in practice, I think not wanting to look stupid or not wanting to come across as someone who doesn't understand can sometimes be a huge part of the issue. You know, when I think about, I mean, I've done loads of these judging startup competitions and I'm always the one to, you know, be mm. like, I'm sorry, um, could you actually just explain this? I don't know if you have, if I missed this in your presentation, but I just fundamentally don't understand this. And, you know, sometimes they go, yeah, we said this on slide two and they reframe it. And I go, oh, yes, I did miss that. But then other times um, they, they go, yeah, well, they, well, or maybe they do, but they, they just hadn't presented it. And suddenly it opens up a whole. Uh, so like, so like one example, if we go back to agriculture, just it happens to be front of mind. There was um, a startup I saw pitching and they were talking about um, an app for I think it was man. Oh, it was a camera that went at the top of um, barns, and it could mm-hmm. using 
some form of I can't remember if it was some form of spectrometry or um, if it was imagery whatever analyze all the the cows and look at their health and all this sort of thing mm-hmm. and they were talking about how digitalization of the farm was going to massively help smallholder farms and it was going to you know help them catch up with bigger farms and get rid of so much uncertainty and all this sort of thing and so they were talking about this, talking about this, and they at one point said what the price of the camera was and, and all this sort of thing. It was, it was quite expensive. And I said at one point, I was like, sorry, is your target audience the smallholder farms? And they were like, um, well, no, not to begin with because it's so mm-hmm. expensive. And I was like, yeah, that's what I was thinking. So it seems a bit strange if you're, why are you talking about smallholder farms if, if your camera's like thousands of dollars? And they're like, oh, well, I mean, we need to be able to sell to big farms. And I was like, so that doesn't help smallholder farms in the slightest. And suddenly all the other judges asked a whole load of completely different questions. And what to me seemed like a really daft question, um, sort of unpicking their sort of socially good narrative. Conscious narrative. Exactly, exactly. Which nobody wants to question because, you know, that's Mm -hmm. a sort of universally good thing to say that you want to help smallholder farms. But the minute you sort of, ask what might seem as a dumb question you you unpick things and I know that sounds super basic but you'd be surprised how many folk don't do that for fear of you know sometimes you know you want to look like the cool judge that asks the damning question and all this right there's a whole mm-hmm. load of I mean, there's something in the, the sort of dynamics of judging panels at startup conferences I mean it's really interesting like every that's a whole sort of social social experiment in and of itself but um I think you know it's a balance between the judges wanting to be seen as these really great shark tank people, but at the same mm-hmm. time also not wanting to ask what seems as stupid questions and startups kind of sailing through as a result. So I was going to say in areas where there's a lot of hype around the terminology of the technology as well, I feel like blockchain is a perfect example of this mm. where people fundamentally obfuscate what the, the core technology is. And you can often ask a question about, well, why do you need blockchain to do this? How does it benefit you over previous applications and previous ways of doing it? And then more often than not, I feel like a lot of the applications fall apart. I mean, would you yeah. agree with that? Or not? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think, I mean, people within the blockchain world, at least the ones that I think are 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 great, um, almost always say, you know, we shouldn't use blockchain for this or we shouldn't use it for that because it doesn't make sense. And they're very sort of quite self-critical. Um, it's a shame there's not so many of those kind of people within the mm-hmm. blockchain world and i think part of the reason that blockchain kind of is how it is is because a lot of people don't feel comfortable being able to kind of have a discussion about it if they're not part of it really really engaged and to be honest i count yeah. myself in that you know i didn't put blockchain in this book for a reason and you know and that reason being i just didn't feel equipped to do a really useful and thorough analysis of it particularly because it moves so fast. I figured if I do analysis now, by the time it gets published, it'll have changed. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to, to talk about in a book format when it's such a fast-changing technology. But at the same time, I do think that there's a level of... It's the same with quantum computing. With particular areas of science and tech that people sort of see as oh, only intelligent people understand it, there's a lot of, again, this lack of a stupid question that's actually required to unpick stuff really, really easily. Um, 
So, so we could we could talk about this now then, because actually a few years ago I did a Reddit Ask Me Anything saying what would people like to hear on my show, my little physics show, and the number one most upvoted answer was quantum computing. Oh, I mean, one day we're going to get there. Hmm. It needs a lot of background um, because we need to sort of explain quantum mechanics and mm. conventional computing. Quantum mechanics has this reputation for being extremely complicated, even magical to those outside the field. There's a reason why everything gets advertised by sticking the word quantum on it, whether it's a mediocre bomb yeah. film or like a, a soap powder, you know. And you have computers which obviously dominate the world around us. You have a great anecdote in your book about one of the first such presentations of quantum computing as an idea to the wider tech community, which just illustrated exactly why something so complicated can be ripe for hype. So if we're going to talk about this, I mean, what I'd like to ask you is from your research on this for the chapter in the book, should my audience be excited about quantum computing or why should they be excited about it and what should they really know about the limitations that it has? Um, I think there's definite reason to be excited by quantum computing. I find quantum computing very interesting and compelling and exciting as a form of technology. I think where the excitement gets a little bit complicated <laughs> or um, there's reason to kind of criticize is when it's pointed to the to applications that don't really make sense. And mm -hmm. it's also where you're getting excited because of the application as opposed to the sort of potential of the technology itself. Um, mm -hmm. And you do have to separate them a little bit when it comes to quantum computing because we don't really know where the... We can talk about where there's possible um, application and usefulness of quantum computing, but realistically at the moment there's not been that many proven use cases even of mm -hmm. uh, you know one that's I mean, there's a lot of debate as to whether you can actually get to the sort of perfect no noise quantum computing anyway so I think where the trouble is is the way quantum computing tends to get presented is this kind of all the problems in the world that we can't currently solve a quantum computer can solve them and mm -hmm. and there's the thing with with hype is there's like nuggets of truth um and there's a nugget of truth in that to some degree but it's it's not you can solve all the problems in the world it's also not a super fast computer that's one of the things yeah. that tends to happen it gets you get sort of mixed up with a sort of supercomputer idea um and it also gets sort of bundled together with you know the hardest problems in the world will be solved by quantum computing. You know, you hear a lot of people talking about how climate change is going to be solved by quantum computing. Um, mm -hmm. And where I see the the excitement with quantum computing is actually in basic science um, applications. Uh, so, you know, simulating, for instance, um, mm -hmm. you know, things at the sort of quantum um, quantum state and quantum level. And chemical interactions that depend on that very specific physics that you can't precisely, get. precisely. And you know there are applications of that, particularly if you think about pharmaceuticals and and you know chemical companies and whatnot. Um, but it's it's far away that at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. And so I suppose I'm excited about the people who are still at the very very. It's not theoretical because people are building this now, but you know, it's, it's not applied. <laughs> it's not, it's not business, shall we say. It's, it's, uh, it's still lab experiments. And of course you are seeing companies like IBM and Google and Microsoft and all that doing real stuff in the space, but it's still, it's super, super early. And they're just, they're, they're early movers more so than have turned it into businesses. And I mm -hmm. think this is where I kind of struggle because you're hearing about quantum computing at business conferences, but to me, it's just, it's too early to be talking about that. And 
what I kind fundamental of, research level still. Yeah, and, and but herein lies the tension of of hype because you need excitement in order to mm-hmm. get funding and people to back it. And look, you know, corporate funding is playing a role in the development of quantum computing. Absolutely. Um, so if you kind of break the illusion or or you know remove the the veil, um, does it mean that then a development of fundamental science would slow down as a result and so in this sense like hype is kind of acting as a bit of a placebo i think so mm-hmm. you know it's hard to answer it just uh, in one answer in a podcast because as you've as you've rightly said it's it takes a lot of time to really get to the mm-hmm. center of why quantum computing is interesting but that's kind of why i wanted to put it in i thought look if i get a whole chapter to talk about this i really do believe i can get to the core of why people should be excited but also they should be very skeptical of the hype mm-hmm. and i hope i achieve that in the chapter yeah, no, it's it's a great chapter and we'll definitely feed into when we eventually do our series on this. Um, is there not a concern, though, that if working quantum computers with these practical applications, uh, whether it's prime factorization or whatever it turns out to be, are, do turn out to be some years or decades away, that these, you know, the big company investment that we have at the moment might develop it to a certain extent. At the moment, there's this race for quantum supremacy mm. and who has the most qubits going on. And yeah, there's not really much focus on what it would mean if you had 100 qubits strung together, what you could do with that. That These companies will be hyped about it. Then they'll realize they don't have any killer applications in the near term. And we end up with a quantum computing winter, yeah, much like exactly. the AI winters that we had in the from the 50s. You know, AI was hyped in the 50s and then people thought it was going to be the next big thing. And then yeah. eventually they gave up on it and came back with new ideas and new hardware later on. Um, and hype is, in that sense, giving you this this weird sense of uh, a sort of oscillating field that is is being damaged by successive periods of where hype doesn't work anymore, and Precisely. then you need hype again about something else to bring it back. Yeah, no, I mean, as you, as you know, that is literally the argument that I make in the book, is I, I do think <laughs> there's going to be a quantum winter, and I worry about mm-hmm. it because... You know, the title of that chapter is The Quiet Winner in Quantum Computing. And the quiet winner that I'm referring to is, you know, people working on pure basic science research. Um, they're, they're the winners because they're getting this technology essentially being, I don't want to say built for them because they're the ones building it as well, but they're getting this, um, you know, tool, if you will, for doing work later on down the line that you just simply cannot do right now. Um, are we, uh, uh, what I mean here is a simulation and mm-hmm. it's difficult because if we do have a winter that they will be the ones that will lose out just as much as the companies I mean the companies will move on they'll invest in other things but the researchers mm-hmm. you know you, you worry about that taking a long time for the level of funding and interest to sort of circle back as you rightly pointed out the same things happen multiple times with AI Um so, you know, that's kind of what I mean when I say hype is acting as a placebo, because in some sense, at the moment, it's working in a, shall we say, a positive way in that it's, mm-hmm. you know, letting this quiet winner have its moment um, while arguably, you know, corporates are getting a little bit fooled um, to someone who's, you know, maybe sort of anti-capitalist or whatever, that, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's take their profits and put them into R&D for something that might have right. some fundamental applications in 20 years. It's better than share Precisely. buybacks, right? Precisely. So it kind of depends on how you look at it, really. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, for me personally, I, it comes back to like whether or not you think it's right or wrong to sort of 
essentially fool um even if you are accidentally fooling it's do you think mm-hmm. that that's an okay thing to do and i i personally don't think it's a good thing to do quantum computing is probably the only chapter in the book that i there's a part of me that's like oh, i guess it's kind of okay because they get to win but oh, you know um and yeah. that's also why i also like dig into the whole nisk uh, era that we're in which is this kind of uh the the, the, the in between where we are now and getting this sort of full scale working quantum computer, what can we do with what we already have, these sort of small scale quantum computers? And if companies are not working to that and, and thinking about what is just the near term, that's when I get a little bit skeptical and go, they've no clue, like we're just so far away. And their propensity to get this disillusionment and have this stop-start progress in the field is obviously enhanced by that. So I should say the structure of the book is it deals with these nine specific areas that are in some way or another associated with hype. And we're just going to cover a few of them. So apologies if we're darting around a bit. But one of the ones (laughs) I knew I had to cover was nuclear fusion, Mm -hmm. because we did almost a year on this show covering various topics in nuclear fusion. And it's an area that is is lousy with hype in some ways. You've got uh, people, even in the very beginning of the subject, talking about fusion being cheap, limitless, and sometimes even free energy which which is not really accurate but you know people still say these things from time to time and fusion researchers obviously have to hype their discoveries and say that their research project is going to lead to this new source of energy to get funding yeah and you know real tangible measurable progress has been made in the last 70 years but i also agree with you that hype cycles surrounding fusion have damaged its reputation quite a lot Mm. since it first started to the extent that now people have this perception of oh it's always 20 years away it's never coming along so I, th- I think it'd be interesting to have a discussion here. Like, what were you expecting to find when you first started researching fusion? And how do you think hype has influenced the field? And how do you sort of feel about where it's going at the moment? Sure. I, I have a lot of people saying, like, why did you think to put fusion in your book? That's a bit of a rogue choice. Mm-hmm. And that's why I put it in the book, because <laughs> I don't think it should be a rogue choice in a book about the sort of big technologies of the future. Um I suppose it, you know, it, my own, shall we say, personal journey of learning about fusion um, was, I think I was, I was at a conference or something and I was in like a small, tiny side room and I think someone mentioned it on a slide with hardly any people in the audience, you know, it was almost like a whisper. And I remember thinking, I don't understand why there's not like a keynote on this. This is really strange at a big tech mm-hmm. conference when we're talking about moonshots if you will and um so it, it I was coming at it from a perspective of why is this not being talked about more and why is it not common knowledge what fusion is you know I would I would mm-hmm. say to people I'm writing a chapter on fusion and they'd be like oh that's such a difficult political topic and I'm like oh no no that that's fission that's a different thing mm-hmm. you know and they'd be like oh right I see and so many wouldn't know the difference or you'd have on the other hand people saying oh, that was debunked as pseudoscience years ago. And I'm like, no, no, that's cold fusion. That's a different Because of Fleischmann and Pons, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So (laughs) it's this kind of thing where, you know, intelligent people who know about a whole load of other areas of science and tech that every other chapter in the book would be second nature to them to some degree didn't know about fusion and didn't Mm -hmm. know about ITER you know, the biggest science experiment on science planet. project in the world. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, and, and you know, my own journey was that too, being like, oh, there's this big thing happening in the south of France. Wait, what? Like, why have I not heard of this? Why is this not being talked about? So that was where I started. It was, I need to understand why no one's talking about this. And when I started looking into the history of, of fusion, the way it was talked about and the, and the various, shall we say, letdowns um, mm-hmm. that the media played a part in too by sort of bigging it up and then it kind of setting up for a fall, shall we say, um, mm-hmm. with, with the various sort of presentations over the years, 
it does make sense but it's a i don't know i thought it was a, just a really compelling story of a technological development and i still think it's quite crazy that it's it's still a kind of niche topic within you know even like wired magazine you'd think they'd be covering it all the time but they're not mm-hmm. um and i think sort of the the final point was that I felt that right now was kind of a really important time to talk about it, particularly with the sort of timelines that a lot of the the big, um, the people who are working on Fusion right now are talking about, where you've got, you know, you've got Eater talking about turning on in 2025. You, you know, I interviewed mm-hmm. First Light Fusion uh, at the start of, uh, I think it was in, or so, spring of 2019, and they were talking about, you know, achieving Fusion in 2019. I don't think they did in the end, mm-hmm. or at least they didn't release it very publicly or very loudly if they did so there was a lot of like right this second i feel like there's something brewing and there's going to be a point where the media is going to suddenly turn on again and i worry that the same thing is going to happen as happened in the past where suddenly there's a whole load of coverage of the especially when ETA turns on they've got five or six years of operation before they're even going to start trying to produce power and even then exactly. as you know it's not even that's not even the prototype power plant that's I know, the experiment i know and this is and i suppose that's kind of why i wanted to put it in it was kind of like i feel like people need to know about this <laughs> and people need to have as much context as possible and i do make that argument at one point in the, in the chapter i think i sort of i talk about how conflicted i feel because you know there's many things about fusion that are that are overhyped within the circles of people talking about fusion and you know we're not mm-hmm. thinking about actually getting things onto the grid and thinking about how you create you know scale for instance and these these are really difficult questions that need to be answered that are not necessarily being thought of as thoroughly as the industry would like by people like eater um and so there's there's lots of issues that need to be talked about but i was you know i sort of said i felt conflicted that I didn't want to present the bad stuff because I wanted people to trust that fusion was important and that she they should care and it was sort of therein lies this tool or the power of hype is that hype is needed to sometimes trick is a malicious word but in some sense get people on board with the excitement especially something that's so difficult as fusion precisely so hard yeah, and especially when you're getting people coming at it from from no knowledge at all, it's like God, you've got to you've got to explain the sun, then you've got to explain how mm-hmm. it's different than fission, then you've got to explain that there's yeah, there's big pseudo scientific past, then you've got to explain all the bureaucracy around ITER, and you know, I mean, obviously this is what I'm doing in the the book, right? But mm-hmm. it's I don't know, I just I found I think actually for me it was the chapter that had the most intricate and interesting hype story of all the technology, and and you know it's. It's really fascinating to kind of see it continue to play out right now. I mean, I know someone writing a, a piece on Fusion right now and they, they tweeted out being like, does anyone know any really good experts? And they were really struggling to find folk because it's it's still this kind of behind the scenes technology, which is crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, let, let me know who that person is afterwards because I can think of a few people they might want to talk Great. to, not me, but others that I've spoken that to. That would actually be um, very helpful. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, I think the the field really feels to me at a crossroads because if ITER does work as intended, it will be a huge science experiment, which is not going to lead to any practical cost competitive power solutions for the grid and might lead to some science that can help some of the startups uh, develop something that's a little bit more feasible. But then on the other hand, a lot of these startups, you have to think to yourself, they're claiming that they can leapfrog the progress. Like if they're not using a tokamak, for example, mm-hmm. they're claiming they can leapfrog the progress that tokamaks have spent 50 years doing, you know, yeah. uh, developing. And uh, I, I don't really see how that can happen. I don't think any single idea 
is so smart as to be able to leapfrog all of that many, many years ago. I know it is as you hear people saying stuff like maybe we chose the wrong technology you know maybe the tokamak was the wrong one to focus on and I do kind Mm -hmm. of you know I'm I'm one of the bits in in that chapter I talk about um I sort of explain technology readiness levels and how normally you know a government um who's trying to you know develop something will pick various different technologies that are all at different TRL levels or TRLs mm-hmm. rather TRL levels is double L but anyway um and in order to essentially kind of like an investor spread their risk but with um but with fusion it's kind of like we've we, governments have gone pretty all in on uh, on the tokamak over the years and with the exception of the the military who have gone for with more inertia confinement for different reasons of course mm-hmm. but um and and there's there's arguments being made by a lot of these entrepreneurs that you know we've we made the decision too early um on the technology mm-hmm. and we haven't spread the, the the funding to actually explore other areas and so they're kind of i suppose hoping that these different approaches with their focus not necessarily, well, I mean, yeah, I suppose they are putting forward that it will leapfrog, but I suppose they're saying even just giving it a shot is something that we've not done enough of. And I don't necessarily, I don't know, I'm not, a, you know, a fusion scientist, so I can't, you know, and I'm also not a, a future teller, but um, it's interesting to just see these different ways of thinking about how to develop technology and try to go up against um, the inherent systems fueled by hype or lack of hype that have resulted in where the focus now is, if that makes sense. And in some ways, it becomes a bit of a fait accompli because the Tokamak people can say, well, we're the furthest advanced technology, yeah. but you would be if you exactly. had the most investment as well. Exactly. That's 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 precisely my point, right? It's like, if you do all that focus, then, you know, what do you expect? <laughs> So one thing that really comes out from the book, especially the chapter on energy storage, but I think it also relates a lot to fusion as well, is the importance of not viewing technological developments and new inventions as a magic bullet that suddenly comes along and solves all of our problems. So what do you think people miss when they focus on some new invention as a magic bullet? And how can we train ourselves, I guess, to consider these hidden caveats when we read about some new invention? Well, I think with, I mean, you've used the term magic bullet. I use the term holy grail in that chapter. <laughs> okay. I think it, no, no, no. I mean, but what I was going to say was, is these m- metaphors um, yeah. are kind of flawed in of itself, right? If you talk about a magic bullet, a bullet still is there to kill someone. It can be brilliant, but it's not got, a, it's got a bad side too. And the same with the holy grail, right? Eternal life, mm-hmm. but then all your loved ones die. That's not great. So I suppose mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say is this, this, idea of perfection is inherently imperfect even in the metaphor that you're using and I think we forget I think we forget that when we're using these metaphors that perfection is is impossible in a complex system and if you want to try and change something like the energy (laughs) the energy industry that you're never going to have one simple solution I mean simple it's obviously not simple but even if you give one invention it's taken 40 years to do it's still not going to solve everything because there's too many components there's too many variables and you almost always have to do you know perform some kind of balancing act because Mm -hmm. I don't want to say that everything is always a zero-sum game but there are elements of that within complex systems and you know you do one thing and it impacts something else in a bad way and when we talk about solving one particular problem, yes, you can find essentially a perfect solution to that one niche problem. But if you don't zoom out and look at that broader impact, you know, even just the impact of removing focus from something else, 
which probably mm-hmm. has impacts on labor and, and, and you, know, um, you know, monetary flow in certain countries, for instance. I mean, look at, for instance, if you take, um, you know, the, lots of people are not buying tons of clothes at the moment because of the pandemic, which is causing huge issues in Bangladesh. Now, mm-hmm. we, you know, don't like the fact that child labor is used and there's horrific practices with some companies that outsource their their manufacturing and their making of clothes to countries like Bangladesh. But the minute you stop that kind of demand, that country plunges even further into poverty or those people that work at those mm-hmm. companies. So, so it's difficult because you're kind of going, well, that's a good thing because this company is not abusing human rights anymore. And you're like, but it's bad because these people now don't have any money. And so you, you kind of mm-hmm. have to like always you know think about the, the repercussions sides. of changing these technologies Precisely. Yeah. or even just the repercussions of again focus and yeah with the batteries chapter the energy storage chapter i wanted to kind of present um present this idea of balancing acts and i used you know the sort of analogy of if you had a little bag of coins and um say you have 10 coins and you have to sort of assign coins to what you care about so say for instance climate change is one option human rights is another option um you know geopolitics is a third right um mm-hmm. if you're to say okay we're going to go all in on getting electric cars with batteries in them next year right let's let's say you, you choose that and you say okay mm-hmm. if i'm going to put 10 coins in my climate change bag I kind of just we kind of just go harder on what we're currently doing, right? Because that will sort of achieve that yeah. goal. If and and that's if you put all ten coins in this climate change bag. But if you go, actually, no, I kind of care about human rights as well. Then suddenly I have to go. Well, cobalt's used in batteries. It's mined in Democratic Republic of Congo. It's got huge issues around mm-hmm. that. So we probably have to find an alternative if we want to protect human rights. So that slows things down. Okay, well we can't have it next year. Then if you go, actually, I also care about geopolitics and not having countries like China, for instance, being way more powerful than everyone else, then again, you have to say, well, we can't do it next year because China's currently the only country in the world that can actually set us all up for getting batteries in cars next year. So again, it's mm-hmm. this idea- With the manufacturing, the mines, the whole vertical control of the supply yeah. chain that you outline in the book. Precisely. And so it's it's this, I think sometimes we can be quite idealistic and naive about what we want to achieve with technologies and you know we sort of put all our we try to put all our coins in one basket and forget about Mm -hmm. the other baskets and then the minute you try and spread your coins between all the baskets progress essentially stops um and and it kind of I wanted to try and show that sometimes why things don't move very fast because we're trying to balance all these really difficult things at the same time. If we wanted things to go really quickly, we could just go, okay, sod human rights, sod, you know, geopolitics, let's just go all in on climate change and we'll, we'll you know, we'll not care about those things. Well, that sounds like an abhorrent thing to say, but it'd be very good mm-hmm. for the climate. And so again, you, you then are back into like quite moral questions about what you think's right and wrong. So I, I think that it's... We, it makes it sound really complex like oh we can nothing can move forward if you think like this Gemma this is you know this is all theoretical but it's like but if you don't think like this that's when you fall into the trap of of believing that this is a holy grail or that this is a thing that we absolutely should unquestioning uh, unquestioningly back and it's important to try and see these broader systems if you really want to understand um the impact of technology and how you personally can also play a part in decisions being made Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And uh, actually, this sort of brings us on to one of the other, I think the last chapter that I wanted to focus on in detail, which is um, this idea of personal agency. Mm-hmm. And one of the key things that comes across from the AI chapter, we're all thinking about AI, machine learning, strong AI. Um, 
one thing that comes across from that really strongly is the dangers of viewing technology as something that evolves by itself, Mm -hmm. something that's sort of extrinsic to human agency, society, decision making, and even AI itself as an artificial intelligence that's external to humanity. Right. And uh, it's this irony that lots of people are imagining what a super intelligent godlike AI would do to society if it could, while they're also programming algorithms that are making decisions that actually affect society Mm -hmm. in ways where they do have some... Mm -hmm jurisdiction and some control over what they're doing so i mean could you talk about that idea of as ai as a kind of externalizing mm-hmm. uh, phenomenon where people are personifying tech and and treating it as something uh, extrinsic to human decisions and that the risks that are associated with this uh, misperception which ultimately i think does come from hype around how advanced the technology is yeah i mean the example that i tend to use which i think hopefully helps people sort of get the point pretty quickly is when you when you talk about the narrative robots are going to steal our jobs um so you know that narrative is very much putting the onus on the robot that is doing the stealing oh the robot should go to jail because it's stole my job <laughs> you know right um or it's a sort of terminator-esque vision of the robots coming in and taking over and all this sort of thing and when you think a bit more deeply about it and you realize that you know robots are going to see their jobs is 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 a headline about automation and then when you think a little bit more about automation and you write a different headline and instead you write corporate executives are making active decisions to replace human lev- uh, human labor with mechanical automation in order to increase profit it's the same narrative well, it's a very different narrative, but you're saying the same thing, really. You're talking about automation, mm-hmm. but you're putting it in a completely different context. And the importance of that shift in narrative, to me anyway, and I hope it would be you know, immediate to people, is with the first one, Robots Are Going to Steal Jobs, you've got images of Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, Hal, all these sorts of things. And then with the second one, you you can read a headline today that's got something to do with that, right? Universal basic mm-hmm. income, corporate um, tax, uh, issues with, um, you know, people being laid off when a company's just done an IPO, right? The, this is stuff that's very in the present. And so when you kind of externalize or other technology, it's almost like you get to sort of push all the real world current problems away and only think about it as this very future thing. And you, you know, you can have conversations mm-hmm. about the trolley problem and all these nice philosophical things over dinner, um, which has a level of importance, but it's not immediate. And so for me, it's really important that we understand where humans have agency and decision-making power, which is everywhere right now because we don't have general <laughs> general level intelligence, mm-hmm. right? We, we, we're, we are building these things we're making decisions about the algorithms that we're using and the methods we're using and whether or not things are black boxes and whether or not we um you know make our data broader or use a small set or whether or not we deploy or we don't you know these are all human decisions it might be teams of humans it might be a whole load of humans one after the other and on a huge big project team but it's still humans there's still a level of decision making and even you know these um stories we hear about you know judges using AIs to help with sentencing or border control using facial recognition, um, you know at passport control and all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. We are still as a society, as human beings, a person signed off on the use of that technology. The technology didn't mm-hmm. decide to be deployed, and so this is where you know for me it's about if we don't know who is building these things and who's responsible, then we don't know who to blame when things go wrong. And we're essentially kind of letting people off the hook. And these kind of fears around 
the singularity and you know the robots are going to take over and all that jazz if we continue not analyzing blame and responsibility and, and and all these sorts of things then eventually yes we will probably start feeling like we've lost control because we're not taking i don't know taking a stake and saying no this is what we care about it's in law it's in, you know all these sorts of things and um so it's it's just a massive distraction frankly yeah and this is this is really how i feel about it having researched it initially when i first started reading about the singularity i got all caught up in these philosophical ideas of oh because it's almost answering the philosophical question of if you could program the mind of god what would you tell god to do that's mm-hmm. the question that these philosophers are asking themselves through the sort of medium of ai as the way you might enact that mm-hmm. and and the irony of it is it's all couched in this utilitarianism this yes. idea that there's some function that you're trying to maximize and we have to decide on what the function is yes and and at the same time, because that's how the algorithms that we program at the moment, uh, the narrow algorithms that actually have an, imp- an influence on society work. And we're imagining that in the context of some super intelligent AI, while ignoring the fact that the real issue with AI or machine learning as it exists in the world is that people are defining these functions and saying, OK, this is the uh, the things we want to feed into the function yes. that decide whether someone is going to be classed as a reoffender, for example. Yes. So they're, they're so concerned about how can we design this perfect optimization function for all of society without realizing that in a myriad different ways, when these tools are being deployed, these decisions have already been made, and yet the philosophers don't seem to engage or aren't as concerned with that, or at least well, some of them aren't. I think it's I think it's about switching the question. I, I always think it's about switching the question, which is an anno- a kind of annoying thing to keep saying. But <laughs> um, and I know that I, I know that I'm, I'm sitting on offense to some degree when I'm doing that. But I with these sort of AI decision making systems i mean the title of the chapter is decision making on tap because i do think it comes back to this idea of sort of outsourcing decision making both in terms of it being automated and humans not being paid for it but also getting rid of blame um and so when you're trying to answer a question like you know should this person be put in jail yes or no um mm-hmm. you know the, the, i i have an example in the chapter where ibm were trying to create this you know question answering machine and i i use the the question is religion good or bad for the world right and when you mm-hmm. you, you have all these questions that ais are being employed to try and answer even just things like should we t- you know should the temperature go up or down right now in order to keep this server cool that's decisions that the mm-hmm. ai's being used for and i don't think the question should be um that uh, you know, is it good or bad, or should it go up or down? It is based on what, and and that is this this shift to that question. I think immediately unravels everything we think about AI because if you say should this person go to jail or not, and then you say based on what, you immediately are thinking about data, priors, mm-hmm. who built the data, um, who built the algorithm who the person is that's employing it, who the person is that's being talked about. You know, if you talk about is religion good or bad based on what? Based on what you consider moral, based on, based on what country you're in. But, you know, there's... You bring back in those subjective moral judgments precisely. that are actually really happening all the time. That the hype around the technology kind of camouflages in this false objectivity by giving you a number that's like, well, this person is 0.74 on our scale of reoffender likelihood, exactly. and therefore they must go to prison. You know? And there's this really interesting question that I have that I don't know the answer to, but I kind of I put in the book for people to have a little think about, because I think it's a really interesting question around data sets and AI. So, um, okay, so say, say you're doing the 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 uh, the, uh, the offender and whether they should go to prison, right? And you look at the database that's being used to decide. And 
you know, we all know if the person is um, not white, there's a high chance that the the, um, mm-hmm. the system will say, yeah, they should go to jail, right? Based on um, the data that we have around current sentencing. Now, there's an interesting question here of, should you have a database that is reflective of society? And when I say reflective of society, I mean, society is biased. Society has flaws. Um, you know, women are paid less. Uh, black people mm-hmm. go to jail more. You know, all these sorts of things in our society, right or wrong, that is the reality of the society we live in. So do we build a data set that is reflective of that and then train an AI on it, which is only going to accentuate those things? Or, and, and say maybe try and say to the AI, hey, these things are bad, could you try and change it? Or do you build a data set that is a utopian vision of society? So you use a data set that's like, this is what we'd like to see in society Mm -hmm. this is what we think should happen and then train ai on that now answering that question is very difficult um and lots of issues in that but it who defines the utopia well well, precisely but you know it makes you immediately kind of not really trust a lot of these systems because you're like Mm -hmm. well well, sorry what what does your data set say what is it based on where does it come from i mean the, the example that's used so much is the one um the Google Translate one where, you know, you typed in, he is a he is a um, nurse, she is a doctor. And then you get Google mm-hmm. Translate to put it into a language that doesn't have genders, like Turkish, for instance. So essentially it would be like one is a nurse and one is a doctor. And then you translate mm-hmm. back into English and it switches it. So it's, and it's now he is a doctor, she yeah. is a nurse, right? This is the one that's always used as like sexist data, right? And, and then, but you, and it's understandably so, but at the same time, more men are doctors and more women are nurses. That is the reality of our society, right or wrong. So the, the AI is not wrong for doing that. It's you know it had to make a decision, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it could have said one, but people don't really talk like that anymore. But the, the point mm-hmm. is, is it had to make a decision, and it did it based on what our society currently looks like. And so the problem is not that the AI is racist or biased or anything. It's that our society itself needs yeah. improving. If we want to then build an AI off the back of our current um, current state of things, and I guess it's about finding that balance between something that works in society and something that perpetuates the bad things about society mm-hmm. that just needs to be more of a focus. But hype is ultimately it's really tempting. We want to believe in this glorious technologically enabled future, and when we see how far we've come in the last couple hundred years, there's every reason to be excited about development in science and technology that will genuinely improve people's lives. But your book compellingly illustrates the ways that hype can hold back different fields, that it can misdirect research, that it can distract from what's really going on or actual solutions. What would you hope for in a society that learns the historical lessons of hype? How would we change as individuals and organizations? I would hope that we would be a society that cares more, frankly. Um, I mean, this is the sort of lefty part of me coming out, but I, I kind of believe that there would, if we really understood the, shall we say, unfairness that is at a root of a lot of the issues within science and tech, which is also at the root of a lot of the reasons hype works or hype doesn't. Um, you know, it's it's misinterpretation of things. It's you're basing things on what we previously already believe. It's, it's, it's accentuation of all these issues. Um, I would hope that with people understanding things more, being able to pick apart things, um, understand the impact it has on people now in the future in different countries uh, from different backgrounds, I don't know, I guess I, maybe it's idealistic of me, but I would hope that we would, we would be a bit more 
united, maybe. Maybe we wouldn't. I don't know. I just feel that at the moment, there's a lot of development happening happening that people think is positive for society and they don't realise that it's not. And so I'd like to think that if they knew about certain things that really genuinely were good for society, at least in, in their eyes, and things that weren't because they weren't being, shall we say, tricked, that things would move back into the the sort of development of things in the way that people like. That was such a rambly answer, but I guess... We have to have that faith that people can make good decisions without yes, the smoke and mirrors and exactly. that actually more information is a good thing and more understanding is a good thing. Yeah. And people can be persuaded without needing this tool of hype to the same extent that investing in fundamental research and projects that might go wrong, for example. I mean, consider if people had invested a little bit more in pandemic preparedness in advance. Right, you know, exactly. We don't need to come up with a doomsday scenario to see why that would be would have been a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think people, I don't think people are inherently bad. I just think people don't mm-hmm. realise what's what's really happening and they don't realise the impact of their actions all the time. They don't realise the impact of other people's actions either. We just don't have space in our heads for it. Um, but I believe that if more people knew more stuff and they knew where things would be damaging, that they would be compelled to say, no, I'm not okay with that. Let's do something different. Gemma, thanks very much for Smoke and Mirrors. It's a brilliant book. Thank Everyone you. should get it, get the audiobook, take a listen. And thank you for coming on the show and being interviewed. I so appreciate you really reading it. Um really mindfully and it seems like from this interview you've really taken these ideas in and I just I so appreciate someone reading my work with such um intentionality so thank you for that (laughs) oh thank you Uh, hopefully everyone will approach it the same way thanks very much Thanks very much for listening to this episode and to Gemma for coming on the show. As a reminder, her book Smoke and Mirrors is available from all good bookstores and I listen to the audio version too, which is just as good. There are chapters we didn't get to cover on brain-computer interfaces, technology and agriculture, technology and drug discovery and hype around cures for cancer, commercialising space and astrobiology, finding aliens, but each of them is really well researched and worth your time. What I like most, I think, is some of the broad themes that come through these illustrative examples. One example is that people assume that a solution is better just because it's more technologically advanced or complicated, which might not be true. For example, solar panels that exist already, silicon, may indeed end up being a cheaper energy source than fusion. Uh, Vertical farms and hydroponics, that's really advanced technology, but when you compare the energy and resource footprints, it might not actually end up being that much better than traditional farming and growing, uh, eating locally and in season, which is a sort of low fashion, but actually more uh, better technology with more leverage when it comes to climate. And then we have this idea of hype as a distraction, hype that distracts around what's really going on. For example, people's misconceptions surrounding the space industry, uh, what the real profitability is there and the problems that it has. Um, Because the space industry is focused on people talking about colonizing Mars and space tourism and asteroid mining and lots of things that are probably in reality many more decades away than we might think at the moment. And then, of course, there's hype that distracts from actual solutions, these sort of magic bullet holy grail technologies for climate change, cancer moonshots, this sort of thing. Then there's hype that confuses people as to how far we've actually got. So the classic example I think of is uh, we've talked a lot on the show about neural networks that can mimic speech. And uh, Steve Wurzik, who made the Mitsuku bot, he has to regularly explain to people that Mitsuku is not sentient. And this is mostly because of the hype surrounding other bots like Sophia, who've been built uh, and sort of sold as intelligent to people in sort of snake oil trickery. And the people who are fooled by that then go on to... You know, they hear other people talking about AI, they think that Mitsuku is sentient. And Steve, who I am friends with on Facebook, I constantly see him battling with people about uh, various different uh, aspects of his own bot. They're trying to persuade him that it's sentient. And he, having written thousands and thousands of lines of this thing, can assure them that it isn't. And then, of course, there's hype that disillusions people. We have the hype in nuclear fusion, which is 
led to this perception that it's always 50 years away and perhaps not worth investing in, and hype that can distract from the real problems to solve. I mean, it's whether we're going to solve everything with some new battery or some new solar panel invention, when actually what we need to do to fix climate change is to tackle a whole energy system, uh, a huge uh, systemic problem with different political actors, different companies and so on going on. And, and then, of course, there's the hype surrounding problems that can detract from the actual issues. So people are worried about super intelligent AI safety, but there are also actual algorithms, narrow AI that's influencing society at the moment. And I think actually when you look at things through this lens of hype, but but more what Gemma's saying is not even necessarily don't believe the hype always, but contextualize it, understand all of the different things that play into how a technology really works. Don't allow yourself to settle for the simple narrative surrounding these things. And, you know, embrace the complexity. I think that's a really important message um, because otherwise you're not going to get a real perspective on what's going on. And you can find more of her work on Twitter at Gemma Milne, on her website at gemmamilne.co.uk, and you can listen to the newly relaunched Science Disrupt podcast, which has a recent episode about science communication in the age of coronavirus, which is obviously very topical and something that we've talked about on here as well. So go and listen to that. Now, as for us, of course, you can find the show at physicspodcast.com, where you'll find all the past episodes and the contact form that goes to my email. Send any comments, questions, concerns, episode ideas, people you'd like me to interview, all kinds of things like that. Always makes my day to get communication from you guys, so do send it over. You can follow us on the web, on Twitter, at PhysicsPod, the Facebook page is Physical Attraction. I've set up a new Facebook group uh, for science podcasts, which is just called Science Podcasts. For, for many years, there was one for history. There's actually two for history podcasts, and there wasn't one for science. So I've got together with uh, Rachel Wheelie, who hosts her own science podcast, the Level Up Human podcast, and we've set up a Facebook group for fans of science podcasts. If you're a science podcaster yourself, you can go there. So that's a new project that you might want to join in. Um, we also have a Patreon page. I really need to use that more and come up with some content for the people who've subscribed to it. Um, the, the rule there is that you only pay when I release new content on there, so it's not a monthly subscription for this thing. And there's a PayPal link as well for one-off donations. If you want to support what I do, we are and remain totally independent, solo, a passion project for me. Anything you can do to support us, from telling your friends to listen to the show, to reviewing the show on various platforms, to sending us advice, encouragement, it's all greatly appreciated. It's not just about money. Uh, we have some more interviews in the pipeline for you that will be out soon. Uh, our theme music is by Melody Sheep and used with kind permission of them. And you can support them on Patreon as well and download all of the other science theme music that these guys make. It's truly amazing stuff there. Until next time then, take care. I'm Leah. And I'm Will. We are the hosts of Eureka Nerd, a bi-weekly science news podcast. Ever wonder what's inside a lobster? What are some of the health risks associated with bagpipes? And if you lick a toad, what's the worst that can happen? Join us every other Sunday for new episodes at eurekanerd.com and at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter. Find more science shows through the Stimulus Network at stimulus.network. <laughs> <laughs>